This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Welcome, compañeras, compañeros, compañeros, to today's discussion titled Credible Strike Threats, Global Supply Chains, and Choke Point Organizing. This event is sponsored by Internationalism from Below and Haymarket Books. Internationalism from Below, or IFB, is a relatively new organizing project of a network of socialist activists that seeks to build transnational solidarity with and between movements for social justice and democracy. Um, my name is Lala Peñaranda, she, her pronouns, and I'll be fortunate enough to be the moderator for today's discussion. I'm an activist from Colombia uh, with a background in agrarian organizing, and I'm the Latin America coordinator for trade unions for energy democracy, also known as TUED, which is a global network of trade unions, approximately 96 trade unions in about 27 countries um, that works on issues related to the just transition and um, supply chains as well. So um, that is me. I guess I'll also mention that I am a member of uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, and uh, Science for the People. And it's my pleasure to introduce um, these three lovely comrades uh, who will be enlightening us um, activists who are uh, in need of, you know, um, sort of experience and, and guidance from um, from people who have dedicated their their lives to, to studying strategic troublemaking um, on a global scale, which is just an amazing life <laughs> uh, career to have. Uh, so we have leading experts on global labor struggles and strategy, uh, Robert Ovetz, Gifford Hartman, and Ben Norman. And um, let me just frame today's discussion by saying that, as we all know, the, the supply chain crises in the aftermath of the on ongoing COVID-19 pandemic provides us all an opportunity to reflect on the vulnerabilities of the just-in-time model of capitalist production. And as capital analyzes and prepares for risks to the global supply chain, so must we, workers, if we are to make global systemic changes needed to reverse the many catastrophic crises facing the planet. 
the new issue of the journal New Global Studies features a forum on workers' movements and the global supply chain, which examines unions and global labor organizing in seven countries, identifying and assessing strategies for cross-border worker organizing at these strategic choke points to apply pressure, extract gains, and tip the balance of power in our favor, workers' favor. Um, so I'm going to ask um, my comrades to first just tell us a little bit about their personal stories, how they got um, involved in this work, and sort of where um, I guess their their heart lies in in these um, in in this work. And I'll start by asking Robert, then Gifford, then Ben. And after those introductions, we'll continue on to um, our, their presentations. So Robert, please welcome and take it away. Well, thank you, Lala. Uh, thank you for having us. And I also want to just thank uh, Jake Wilson, who's unable to be with us. Um, he was my co-editor of the series of, uh, that you were referring to. So a little bit about myself. I'm a senior lecturer in political science, which means I'm an untenured professor uh, at San Jose State University. And I teach classes on uh, labor relations, uh, organizing uh, political campaigns, advocacy campaigns. Um, as well as U.S. and California government and international relations. Um, and I, I think what really brought me to this work originally uh, was uh, when I realized that uh, mainstream politics uh, just didn't work. I had actually worked in the Texas legislature uh, for two uh, representatives, and uh, I realized that that was really kind of uh, a dead end in some way. And so while I was in college, I actually tried to organize two unions uh, in Texas, uh, which is not an easy place to do it. They weren't successful, but ultimately I, you know, I caught the bug uh, of labor organizing. Um, one was of graduate students and one was uh, at a little food co-op. And uh, the food co-op one really bombed really badly because it turned out my partner at the time was on the board. And so that didn't just blow up, but it also blew up a relationship. Um, and uh, when I came back to the United States after living abroad for a long time, I had been working for non-governmental organizations. I even ran an NGO. And I realized that that direction also uh, was a, a dead end. And so as a, a part-time uh, non-tenured academic, um, I started to throw myself into labor organizing. And uh, I came across this really amazing book uh, by um, an incredible labor scholar, uh, Manuel Ness um, and uh, Jake Wilson. And it's called uh, Choke Points. And uh, it's an incredible book. And it really got me thinking about where, um, where our organizing can be most focused to have the greatest impact. And uh, that's really what led me to this work. And so I, I want to give my my nods to Jake and to, to Manny Ness. And if you haven't seen that book, it's, it's quite an extraordinary book. And that um, led me uh, to put out my second book, which is an edited collection with Pluto uh, called Workers' Inquiry and Global Class Struggle. My first one was on the history of uh, labor militancy in the United States from the 1870s and 1920s, which was a long time project that I worked on uh, before I came to this particular aspect of it. And that was republished by Haymarket a few years ago. Um, 
And then I've got one more book coming uh, in just three weeks, which is a class analysis of the U.S. Constitution um, and how uh, workers really uh, push those who wrote the Constitution to write it in the way that they did. So that's really kind of how I got to this work. Thank you for, for asking, Lala. Great. So fortunate to, to have you here, Robert. Um, Gifford, over to you. Okay. And thank you for everyone for hosting us. Um, my trajectory is a little different. Um, as a university student, I got radicalized by the anti-apartheid movement on college campuses across the U.S. I was living and going to school in Berkeley. And um, kind of it was really important um, to have a vision of the world, how people's struggles elsewhere were really important. And um, I learned about um, a solidarity action that happened here in the Bay Area where I live. Um, in 1984, longshore workers in the International Longshore and Warehouse Union boycotted a South African ship, and they did it for 11 days. They had to fight the riot cops to defend their boycott, but it really resonated with me. And I was a young student, so I saw the anti-apartheid struggle. I learned about the strikes and the struggles in South Africa, but then I saw the possibility of international solidarity. And in 1990, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, he did a speaking tour across the United States and his last event was in Oakland. And I actually went to the event at the baseball and football stadium and I heard him thank the ILWU, the Longshore Workers who did the Solidarity Action. So it really implanted in my mind that that was a badass union that I should be aware of. And soon after, a year or two later, I was working in a call center and we organized a union and we joined the ILWU. And in being in the union, that union probably has some of the highest industrial wages in the United States. And it maintains control with a master contract at 29 ports on the West Coast. And it really does leverage its ability to control those checkpoints. And um, in being in the union, I got the union education, which is wonderful, thorough. And I learned about how the union was born. It was born out of an 83-day West Coast port strike that struck the major ports on the West Coast of North America. And that's how the union was born. And it got so intense because they were so um, able to shut down commerce that two workers were shot in San Francisco. And that launched a general strike that lasted four days. And again, that was kind of the birth of this union that I became part of. So I was always in tune to what was going on in the ports. And when the Gulf War started in 2003, we tried to do a solidarity action with the people struggling against war. And um, at that time, Afghanistan and Iraq, we did a demonstration. We had the consent of the ILWU and the Oakland police came out shooting and shot you know, non-lethal rounds at us. So we knew we kind of hit the right, the right target, maybe not with sufficient numbers. And that played out again during Occupy, and we went back to the Port of Oakland. And if any of you remember, in November 3rd, um, 2011, we actually shut down the Port of Oakland. So we finally did what we've been planning to do all along. And it was kind of a glorious day. I can't even, you know, even today, I get goosebumps thinking about it. And I saw the potential of hitting the right choke point with the sufficient numbers, you know, the right action, the right um, mobility to leverage that uh, power. And um, I, since then, I've been um, working with railroad workers across North America. Being around the ports, I was connected to truckers, kind of back to Robert. Um, I met some truckers at the biggest port complex in North America, Los Angeles, Long Beach, and I stayed in touch with them as they struggled. 
And I saw the need to connect all the various sectors along supply chains. And again, what, what I learned about South Africa when I was young is looking across oceans and seeing cross-border solidarity is crucial. And that's why I'm here. Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm just so honored to be in in this conversation with with you. And before um, passing it over to to you, Ben, I, so far you know this 100% confirms that the most important qualities in in comrades is really that sensitivity towards outrage, um, anger, and then also this sensitivity to to goosebumps, right? To to be um, to feel yourself inspired, motivated, and curious about, um, about beautiful people fighting for liberation. Um, so thank you. Thank you both. And Ben, please, you know, lean into this. Um, both Robert and Gifford were, were cut us short in, 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 in telling us about themselves. So just lean into it. Tell us, you know, um, about, yeah, about, about your background and, and, and what, what brought you to this work, um, who inspired you, et cetera. Take your time. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you and uh, a great pleasure to be invited to speak with you. I mean, uh, it goes against every uh, British instinct I have to share my goosebumps moments with you, but I will do my best to get past that. Um, <laughs> to give you a bit of a background on myself and my work. Um, so I'm Ben Norman. I work as a researcher, an industrial researcher for Uni United Union, uh, with the largest uh, general workers union across the UK and uh, in Ireland as well. Uh, predominantly, my work is with uh, manufacturing workers, so particularly in the auto sector, but also metals and uh, down the supply chain there. So there's a natural part of that work. Really, the need for supply chain organizing, as I'll sort of, you know, we'll go on to discuss later today, uh, that's just become more and more of a necessity in terms of what workers are facing. I think there's been a long recognition, particularly with the workers that I support, uh, but they can no longer just fight the bosses within the four walls of their factory. They have to, if they're going to have mounted a credible you know, resistance or fight back to what workers are doing, uh, then they have to do that down the supply chain. They have to understand their employer as a multinational uh, and you know, going far, far beyond uh, the forms of strength that our unions in the UK you know, traditionally uh, relied on. Um, in terms of my own uh, background, I mean, I think like a lot of people uh, in this country of my generation, I really came into activism through the Stop the War movement from 2003 onwards, uh, and then was really turned far more towards community organizing uh, or really activism, as we <laughs> tended to more refer to it then, um, around 2010, when we had the anti-austerity movement, so just before Occupy really also came to, to these shores as well. Uh, and so really working with the local trade unions in my city, I'm down in Portsmouth in the south coast of the UK, a small uh, well, coastal city, a dock city. Um, and it was really coming through that movement, I suppose, which is really where I learned my, you know, learned my beginnings of my socialism, my activism. But I think a key moment for me really was in 2009. Um, and then going on from there, when we had a large uh, occupation uh, of what was at the time the UK's only wind turbine manufacturing facility. Uh, the company were planning on asset stripping that. Uh, the workers went into occupation, which at that time, at that moment in the class struggle in the UK was absolutely uh, not a common feature of what was happening. Uh, and you saw the community galvanizing around that. You also saw the environmental movement galvanizing around that. So we had, you know, activism galvanizing around that, which was very powerful. But then the thing that really you know, flipped the switch in my mind was then seeing 
uh, the unions come in and really have a, a proper worker organising approach, which is really ultimately what was able to take the employer on in that particular dispute. And I think that was really a, a moment the penny began to drop in my own understanding of the importance of trade union organising and worker organising. And I think that's something that's happened in the UK more generally, right? I think we've, people have tended to not call themselves activists anymore. Now, very much people refer to themselves as organisers. And I think that general understanding and appreciation has begun to shift in the UK of the differences between those things. I think I, I joined Unite the Union in 2014, uh, again, as a, in a staff role. I've had a number of roles within the union in that time. And it's been an absolute pleasure for me to work with a, a heroic series of, of organisers that we have in our union, both at the shop stewards and the worker level and full-time organisers, and indeed other researchers and some of the work and the campaigns that they have done to take on employers, win the fights of victimised shop stewards. Uh, I mean, have been absolutely inspirational over the last few years. And I think the trade union movement in, a, in this country as well has gone through a, a series of political changes. We've had things like Brexit. We've had the Jeremy Corbyn movement. Uh, and now, you know, there's a big question mark about what comes next. And I'll go on to discuss a little bit of that in my own uh, intervention later on. But I think the fundamental thing which is missing uh, in this country for a long time is an independent rank and file shop stewards movement. And I think there's a growing realisation of that. Uh, and there's a growing move towards that, which is why the strike wave in this country has been so important. Uh, and I think what we've seen in the last year, and again, I can go on to touch on this later on, in, in my union, we've had the election uh, of Sharon Graham, who's the first female general secretary of our union, an old historic trade union. And she's very much committed to rank and file power, building the shop stewards movement, supporting workers going into dispute. And I just this morning came off the picket line at Felixstowe, largest UK container port. And that absolutely is my goosebumps moment. Uh, if we can see 2,000 UK dockers walking off a job over the last four days of the absolute disruption and anarchy that is causing down major supply chains, whilst at the same time we see rail workers, postal workers, hundreds and hundreds of disputes just in the last couple of months alone. It really, I think this is the most exciting time to be in the UK labour movement, really. It's certainly in a time I've been alive maybe for several decades before that. Um, so that's the goosebumps moment we're at, and I'll, I'll leave it at that, but uh, delighted to speak with you today. Thank you, Ben. That's, that's an epic morning that, that you had. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so I, I have a lot of questions for you, but I think that um, in order to make time and maximize that time of questions at the end, uh, we should just get right into the presentations. Um, Fortunately, these lovely comrades have made the task of moderation as easy as possible by creating presentations. Um, so without further ado, I'll just pass the microphone back to Robert. And yes, Robert, take it away. Okay, thank you, Lala. So what I'm gonna so what I'm gonna talk about is uh, credible strike threats. And this just to piggyback a little bit on on my background is um, in 2016, um, one of my unions, the California Faculty Association, had issued a strike threat. And then within a few hours, uh, had settled with the university system. And so I wanted to try to understand whether or not this strike threat would have led to an actual threat, uh, would have resulted in an actual strike, and whether that threat was actually credible. Um, and because we didn't get to go on strike, um, I spent the next couple of years um, really thinking about uh, what a credible strike threat is. And um, I just want to give a shout out also to Helena Worthen, um, who really got me thinking about how to assess whether or not a strike threat is credible. 
Um, and I had ri- originally started this project with her. She's a labor educator uh, from the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, I eventually started a project where I, uh, with a research assistant, uh, gathered information over a five-year period uh, issued either formally or informally. So it really got me thinking about uh, strike threats. And uh, like Ben's talking about uh, having a hot summer in the UK, which you can track on Strike Map UK. I just want to give a shout out to, uh, to that pro- incredible project. Um, in the United States, we've also had uh, far more, as far as I can tell from uh, my assessment from last fall um, and during this five-year period that I looked at, uh, we've actually had, uh, during these two periods, uh, small samples, uh, we've actually had far more workers involved in, ma- in organizing and making strike threats and actually going on strike in the United States. So um, what uh, has uh, led me um, uh, to go down this path to, to look at strike threats is that ultimately uh, we really want to um, be able to be strong enough to win. And so when uh, workers are uh, making strike threats, um, ultimately uh, these are strike threats that we want to make sure turn into strikes uh, that are effective. However, uh, what we tend to overlook is that uh, the strike threat itself can also uh, demonstrate that we're powerful enough in order to extract concessions and build our power and tip the balance of power, um, whether it be in the shop floor of a particular uh, single workplace or whether it's across an entire employer's uh, work sites or it's through an entire industry or even perhaps um, at, at the level of a general strike across a particular geographical region. Um, in order to uh, really understand this, I use what's called uh, a worker's inquiry. A worker's inquiry is a method uh, that allows us to assess our strength and develop tactics and strategies uh, before we make a strike threat. Um, this is something that I lay out in more detail if you're interested in uh, in uh, worker's inquiries in uh, my second edited book, which came out a couple of years ago. So I'm going to uh, focus for a few minutes on how do we actually assess our strength and develop those tactics and strategies. And then uh, Gifford will follow me and talk about how to identify where choke points are to ensure that uh, workers have really kind of come back uh, to the center of a lot of our discussions. Um, You may have heard um, of the labor uh, organizer and trainer, Jane McAlevey, uh, who does uh, a lot of uh, very well-attended workshops on uh, building workers' power. Uh, Of course, through labor notes, uh, there are many trainings on how to build power in the workplace. Um, and so you've probably, if you're if you're listening to us right now, you've probably heard of a gradual tactical tactical escalation. Um, and what's important about that is uh, that it's used towards building towards a strike. And this can occur in a number of different ways. And I'll come back to uh, some more examples of this. But just as a small sampling, it could be through an official strike vote by a union if you have a formal union organization. Uh, For me, a union means any group of workers that are organized and taking action, whether or not they actually are formally recognized, um, either if they're public employees by uh, whatever labor relations authority exists or at the federal level. Another uh, way to uh, recognize gradual tactical escalation uh, towards a strike is through organizing a a formal strike committee. 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, signing strike pledge cards, uh, picketing or uh, carrying out marches on the boss, uh, engaging in sick outs or ghost lows or work to rule actions. Unfortunately, the New York Times ran a story yesterday about quiet quitting. We should just call it what it is. These are uh, work to rule actions uh, or setting up a strike uh, fund. These are just a few possible examples in which workers are engaged in organizing and gradually escalating, turning up the heat on their tactics as they move towards a potential strike, whether they're they're threatening to strike or not. Uh, for example, uh, throughout the UK, uh, a few weeks ago, there were a number of wildcat strikes of workers in Amazon uh, warehouses. This then inspired workers in uh, the Inland Empire in Southern California in one Amazon warehouse to walk out on strike. Uh, they obviously were building towards, we're learning more about what happened, uh, but these Amazon Workers United uh, obviously were building some sort of organized presence on the shop floor and organizing with fellow workers and uh, essentially uh, used their power to walk out and disrupt uh, the operations of the warehouse over a couple of days. So once we recognize that there's tactical escalation going on that may be towards a formally declared threat to strike or what looks like a potential movement towards a strike, uh, we should be asking ourselves, what makes a strike threat credible? And so I think of uh, credibility as being based on the idea that if the boss don't pay a cost, the strike will be lost. So a tactical escalation towards a strike threat should be something that ultimately would result in cost to the employer if the strike was to happen. So what makes that strike threat credible? There's two aspects to this. That credibility has to be credibility to the boss, to the employer, and it also has to be credible to the workers, whether they're the workers that are involved in the organizing and the tactical escalation, but most importantly, to the other workers that are on the sidelines, interested, supportive, but not yet involved, and then those who are disengaged, and even those that are opposed to potential uh, efforts uh, to move towards a strike. So let's take one at each time. So uh, one in turn. So the first one is, are the strike preparations credible to the employer? So when an employer assesses what's going on on the shop floor, they're looking at the workers uh, who are taking these tactical escalations in action. Uh, they will engage in a cost benefit analysis to assess whether it's costly now to uh, to give the workers all or some of what they want, or whether avoiding settling now would result in a costlier strike later on that they may end up giving even more. So a strike is likely from that perspective of the employer, either when the uh, employer wrongly assesses that credibility or, cred or correctly sees that uh, those workers uh, lack a credible strike and will ultimately carry out a strike that's unsuccessful. For example, it will have very few workers involved or it won't last very long um, or it'll kind of dwindle and, and fall apart or there's a limited time that they're striking, whether it be two hours or 24 hours. So they just wait it out. Uh, an example of a strike threat that I think was credible was the UC lectures uh, union, the UCAFT, uh, which had made actually two strike threats 
uh, in the fall of 2001. And ultimately, the UC settled uh, on quite good terms, quite an improvement of the work conditions and pay and benefits for the lecturers. The second perspective is, are the strike preparations credible to the workers? Is, and there are several ways to assess this. For example, um, is there gradual tactical escalation? Do the workers see that uh, other workers are getting involved? Uh, they're taking, uh, starting with small actions, taking increasing escalation in the pressure that they're applying. Does this attract more workers to get involved? Uh, is there bottom-up member self-directed organizing or, you know, compared to perhaps staff-led organizing? Um, are the are those that are getting involved a visible supermajority of the members? And are they making a commitment to strike? Uh, is there a disruptive uh, power at particular choke points that can increase the cost of a potential strike? and thus uh, bring uh, a greater likelihood of it resulting in gains for those workers. Um, is there a strike fund and is it sufficient to allow the workers to engage in an open-ended strike? For example, right now there's several thousand uh, mental health professionals in the Kaiser uh, hospital chain in California that are engaged in an open-ended strike. Um, do they do they have a record of taking previous strike related action and were those previous actions uh, resulting in successful outcomes for the workers? Is there uh, sufficient media coverage? In other words, is the public uh, learning about that strike? Um, is there a, a publicity impact on the employer? And is also that publicity attracting support both on the shop floor and from perhaps other unions or other workers, other members of society in the community? And so does that result in uh, public support from potential outside allies? So uh, you can see on the on the slide that uh, this is an image of a T-shirt from uh, my union's uh, strike threat back in 2016 that I was talking about. And I think it illustrates what is not credible in the kind of messaging that a strike threat would take. The T-shirt says, I don't want to strike, but I will. Um, I think that's a self-contradictory message. And ultimately, what I uh, evaluated and found was that our strike threat was not credible. And I'll, I'll show you that in just a moment. So uh, in my chapter uh, of my book, Workers Inquiring Global Class Struggle, uh, I discuss uh, what makes a strike threat credible or not credible in, in more detail. And then I present uh, what I call a, a scorecard. And so I, I developed this method by which we can score these different elements. Um, this is the total scorecard. It's very small. So I'm going to break it down and, and, and just briefly discuss each part of how we can uh, use the scorecard to assess our strike threat to see how credible it is to, uh, to the workers, but also to the employer. So the first part, and there's a lot in there, so I'm just going to briefly just kind of summarize, is um, I classify it into uh, three categories. Uh, the first one being uh, what labor scholars call organizational power. In other words, uh, how uh, are the workers organized in uh, that particular location? So I look at, uh, this card allows you to look at um, how well 
uh, the workers are organized in their particular workplace or at their employer? Um, are there organic leaders? Are, are there previous forms of cooperation among the workers? Is it self-directed organizing and a number of other features? And then um, you provide a point or a fraction of a point for each one and then uh, note um, the, any details that you want to provide. And you add those up for the organizational power um, and uh, you have a maximum of 15 points. The second is positional power. This is more related to the kinds of things that Gifford and Ben are going to be talking about. Um, of, of positional power of where that uh, workplace is actually located in the supply chain. Um, and then also the relationship uh, among the, the uh, between the workers uh, across different boundaries of division, uh, whether it be race or ethnicity, um, and then also uh, connections with other unions at that workplace. For example, we have six unions um, in the California State University system. Um, the UCs have over 20, um, and then across the different work sites as well. And then also it brings in supply chain uh, analysis uh, for looking downstream and upstream, which is what Gifford's going to talk about. And so you score each element for the positional power um, and with the seven maximum points. And then the last category is a category that I think should be added to this uh, lexicon. This was developed by uh, Manny Ness and Jake Wilson, uh, and that's the factor of disruptive power. Um, and essentially, what's the potential impact of the strike threat, um, not just at that local uh, work site, but also across the employer, across the industry, nationwide, and also internationally. Uh, and then what are the details of the impact up and down the supply chain? So how does it impact supplier firms or receiver firms? Um, and then um, what's the level of potential disruption to the entire sector and to the to the national and global economy? And then what's the uh, whether or not there's high or low level expected cost to the employer? And is there an open ended duration of the strike? Uh, there's 20 possible points for that. And then scoring a total of 42 possible points. Um, when I assessed our own strike threat in 2016, uh, we ended up with a score that uh, was about 17 points. So it was incredibly low. It would not have been uh, an effective strike. And it's very likely that we would have lost. But because the employer probably corrected, correctly evaluated our strike threat as not credible, um, they uh, instead offered us a settlement that was uh, very sparse and very um, uh, unsubstantial and really unsatisfactory. Uh, however, it was uh, approved uh, by the membership in a vote. So Gifford and I have done these uh, these talks before, and we build in a training, and we're going to skip the training part, but uh, we last did it at Labor Notes in June. Uh, and what I do in, after uh, presenting uh, this part of the analysis of assessing whether or not a strike threat is credible, I then have uh, everyone who's attending uh, form into groups of about four to 10 people. And I give each group a strike threat scenario. And I ask them to discuss the scenario. So each group gets one of the scenarios. Uh, and then I ask them to discuss two questions. Is this a strike threat? Why or why not? And uh, if it's not, what would make it a strike threat? And then second, uh, if it's a strike threat, is it credible? And if it's not credible, what would be needed to make it credible? And then I have them report back and we discuss 
uh, whether or not uh, it's a strike threat and whether or not it's credible or what would be needed to make it credible. So I'll just give you just three brief examples and then I'll turn it over to Gifford. Uh, so uh, I, I have more of these scenarios, but just a, a sample scenario. I'll just give one because I see I'm past time is first. Um, this scenario uh, is that the union president assembled the usual suspects, uh, including religious leaders, local politicians, and union leadership for a press conference to announce a strike in one week. Uh, it will last for four hours unless management returns to the bargaining table. There's no strike fund. And of nearly 200 workers, only about a dozen people have signed up to picket. So then I ask uh, the group to discuss, is this a strike threat? Um, clearly, it's a strike threat. Is it credible? Not very credible. Uh, there's no demonstration of tactical escalation in any way. There's no bottom-up organizing. There's no demonstration of member involvement. And cer certainly there's uh, all the, the structure tests that Jane McAlevey refers to are missing. There's no element of any uh, worker involvement at all. Um, so it's unlikely to be a credible strike threat. And those four hours will probably pass without any real developments and maybe even the employer not returning to the table. Um, so um, in the trainings, we then uh, break down these uh, these uh, scenarios and we discuss them and and we try to rewrite them and redevelop them so that um, we can make them into uh, potential credible strike threats. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Robert. This is extremely helpful. Um, and before passing it over to Gifford, I'll just say, you know, a lot of times in in the union organizing that we do at TUID, um, you know, some of the energy unions will will talk about the you know social dialogue and um, the importance of like, you know, workers, the government and the companies like you know, working together and negotiating and like whatever, like externally unions can decide whether that's that's a strategy they want to uphold or not. But like when it's just workers and we're talking about that, it's like, you know, fuck this. Like, I mean, who wants to be civil with these, with, with the companies um, and with neoliberal governments? Like how much can we like fuck up their profit scheme. That's what it's about. How much can we disrupt this? Um, and so I just love how tangible these questions are. Um, and just in particular, the, the question of if it's not a credible strike threat, how can we get to the point where it becomes credible? And that's just like incredibly constructive um, thinking. I, I love these questions. Gifford, over to you to continue um, to continue this conversation. Great. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Okay. And, you know, I can't see the slides. So is there, I'm kind of. Okay. So you're going to start with the first one, just the organizing at choke points. So organizing at choke points, um, you know, it's really important. Um, it's happening everywhere. Um, you know, it's happening at Felixstowe. Felixstowe is really important. It's happened in Germany. Um, over the month of um, August, there have been three different um, waves of strikes at different ports, important ones in Germany, in Hamburg, and Emden, and Bremerhaven, and Bremen, and Brake, and Wilhelmshaven. So the world's on fire. Um, the ILWU, the West Coast Union that can, um, has a master contract at 29 ports, has are working without a contract. You know, ostensibly, they could go on strike. 
Um, Robert mentioned the stuff at Amazon. It's happening around the world. It's really, really, really exciting. Um, and what's exciting is um, it's got a link. It can link up. And you know, one of the most exciting things I saw recently was on April 15th down in Southern California at the huge complex called the Inland Empire. Amazon controls an airport. It's in San Bernardino. There was a walkout. Now that's really strategic because you could strike a warehouse, you know, a fulfillment center, but they could shift the production, the, the distribution to one down the road. An airport is a choke point that's once you stop it, nothing, nothing flows and the nearest airports, you know, half a state away. Um, so if you could actually go to the next slide, I want to read this quote. And um, this quote is by um, Joanne Lipczewski. And what she said was, this is about supply chain vulnerability. She said, they're not all organized, but then they would not all have to say no. Just enough of them acting in concert at vital points in the chain. And I would like to move ahead with an example. So back in June in South Korea, there was a trucker strike. And in the trucker strike, what people did is people, um, you know, the truckers in South Korea, it's, it's really unique because the Korean truckers haul about 88% of the freight in South Korea. Unlike the United States where um, it's kind of inverse, um, a lot of the freight in the U.S. gets hauled by trains, only 11% gets hauled by rail in South Korea. So the truckers are the backbone of the conduits of the supply chains. And these truckers, the ones in the KCTU, the famous KCTU, only represent 6% of the workforce. They only have 25,000 truckers. But because they were able to focus on choke points and because they, and most of them are with this legal fiction called independent contractors, where they work at a piece rate, they just get paid for hauling individual loads. Um, they struck because during the pandemic, they created a system called the safe trucking freight system, which guaranteed them a minimum freight load. You know, whatever they're going to haul, they're going to get a minimum rate. And um, over time, between May of 2021 and May of 2022, diesel prices went up 46 percent. And since they're working piece rate and they're so-called independents, that eats into what they take home in wages. So they went on the strike. And the strike was really, really powerful. Um, could you show the slide that shows that the cargo trucker solidarity union in South Korea? So this union was able to begin a strike. The strike began on June 7th. They, um, they were protesting about the sun setting. This guaranteed wage was going to um, stop at the beginning of 2023. And already the war in Ukraine is driving up the price of fuel. Inflation is eating into their take home pay. So they launched the strike and it was um, able to go to different various production facilities. And it was able to focus on those choke points because it's a mobile workforce. Um, and if you go to the slide showing just people rallying, you know, at different various production facilities. And if you could also go to the, the, the slide that shows the strikers at a, they started striking key production facilities. Korea is the fifth leading as a, as a nation producer of cars in the world. They went to the Kia uh, model plant in Guangzhou and they set up pickets, but already the solidarity of not hauling stuff shut down, um, easily shut down 50% of the production in the automobile industry in Korea, a targeted um, action. If you could roll the slide again, another slide shows wire, um, wire roll, uh, excuse me, wire rod that's rolled up in coils. They have four factories in South Korea, 
um, by the POSCO, the giant uh, steelmaker, all shut down. A cold roll steel plant shut down. So they shut down steel in South Korea. If you could roll to the slide that shows the strike effectiveness. So the seventh busiest port in the world is Busan. It's the main port in South Korea. The volume was reduced by half. There's 12 major ports in South Korea. The volume was reduced by 53%. Um, and like I said, Hyundai and Kia, 50% of the auto production was shut down. They set up picket lines at petrochemical facilities, shut it down 90%. Now that planted in my head this kind of idea of dress transition. If the workers who control the supply chains for things like fossil fuels, if they're active and aware and conscious, they can shut down the system. And that's where we, the next step is to rebuild it. But that's a really important ability for workers in the energy supply chain to shut it down. Um, again, I'm going to talk a little later, the implications about like the, the pipelines and the um, Dakota Access and the Keystone and all those things here in North America play into workers should be at the forefront of shutting these things down. Um, so the, the new um, president in South Korea is named Yoon Suk-yeol. He's a neoliberal. And this was his kind of iron-fisted attempt to crush labor, and it didn't work. He even tried to mobilize 100 military um, convoys to haul the goods. It just wasn't sufficient. And these costs are kind of always questionable, but the business press claims it costs the economy $1.2 billion, the equivalent of U.S. dollars. Big deal, really important stuff. Um, if you can go to the next slide, um, this is the next slide shows our group started researching how we could look at how all the work sectors coordinate because it is a complex system and it's multimodal. And you know, with the invention of the cargo container and all the technology algorithms and everything that guides it, it's a complex system. And if you can see my supply chain um, goods from China to the US, that was actually also influenced by the book that Robert referred to. It's called Getting the Goods by Jake Wilson and Edna Bonisich. So what our group started doing is we actually took a field trip and we had a, a friend, a fellow worker who actually started working on the railroads out of the port of LA, Los Angeles and Long Beach, and then got a job with the ILWU. And he gave us a tour and he showed us two modes, the rail and the dockers where they worked. And we saw some of the automated cranes, and that's kind of a big issue on the ILW negotiations right now. The model in the world is Rotterdam in the Netherlands. It's some parts of it are fully automated. It displaces workers. It actually disempowers workers. And that's kind of one of the struggles right now. And it, I don't know how much it plays in, in, in Felixstowe. Ben could talk about that. But if you could go to the next slide, what we started doing is doing an analysis of the class composition of all the different industries. And we really thought it was really important to know the comparative numbers. And if you see my slide, some of those numbers are outdated, but it's a, it's, it's a proportion and we could see the disproportionality. And we began to think, well, we have to see the strength in the various sectors and we also have to compensate. And we, all have, we also have to see they all work together. It's a single production chain and they're all cogs in that chain or links in that chain, excuse me. And they all have to be, and like back to the initial quote, if just one of them goes out, it causes ripple effects. Now, if you could go to the slide that says sources of workers' power, this again is borrowing from um, Jake Wilson, going back to um, Beverly Silver. She borrowed some of her stuff from Eric Olin Wright. And we really want people, when we're working on these kind of workshops that Robert and I have done, is to be aware of associational power, or just you have a tight-knit union, and you have uh, you know, a, a tradition of solidarity if you could build that through struggle. You have things like structural power. One, one kind is marketplace bargaining power. That exists around the world with these labor shortages right now. 
Um, you also have workplace bargaining power, and that's when at a choke point and workers at a single port can shut it down. But then if it's a union like the ILWU at 29 ports, you have not only associational power, you have workplace bargaining power. So there's kind of a way to kind of leverage and parlay one kind of power into other forms of power. Um, now, if you can go to the next slide that says the effectiveness of disruptions, we took this from an MIT professor, um, Yoshi Safi, who talks about supply chains. And he writes it from a business perspective. And this is a chart that shows the threats that the business world sees. And if you see all the red colored ones, those are the ones based on working class agency, when workers consciously take action. The black ones are just kind of um, breakdowns in the system by its own kind of contradictions. The green ones tend to be more natural disasters, but all of them pose a threat that actually can break down supply chains. But if you look over to the right side and at the bottom, multiple port closures are what the true strength is, is because if you shut down Felix though, they send it to Southampton. If they shut down Southampton, they send it to Liverpool. You have to eventually try to coordinate all the ports. You know, and if you shut them all down in the UK, they send it to Rotterdam or Antwerp or Hamburg or wherever. And that's why we need international solidarity. And this is just kind of a conceptual tool. How could we start thinking in these terms? How can we reach out, build solidarity, extend the network of conscious workers struggling together? Now, if you go to the next slide, it's a photograph of a, a conference we had in 2015. Um, and in this conference, we actually were fortunate that we were able to draw together 125 people. About one fourth of those people were industrial workers. If you could go to the next slide that says the Richmond Safety Conference, you could see that we had 25 active rank and file railroad workers from um, around the US came to this conference. The conference was because in 2013, there was an explosion in Lac Magantique in Canada. It was a frack train that ran down the tracks. It was a runaway train. It went into the small town. It killed 47 people, horrendous. It liquidated, it just totally burned up and vaporized 30 buildings, a terrible disaster. And of course, the small company that ran the railroad blamed it on the workers. And it was really management's malfeasance that was the cause. And with all the frack trains running around North America, they were incredibly dangerous, the notorious bomb trains. So we had this conference. But by mere good luck, there happened to be a refinery worker strike at the same time. So if you could go to the next slide, we actually had refinery workers who had actually driven up from Southern California 400 miles to join this conference. Because once we began the conference talking about the safety of railroad workers, we found out that the strike of the refinery workers is over the same issue. It was safety. And the refinery in our community, it's a little town called Martinez. It's on the Delta around here in the Bay. And um, back in 1999, they had a fire at the refinery. It killed four workers. So when the railroad workers got in discussion with the refinery workers, they found safety was one of these paramount things. And we also, if you could go to the next slide, we actually did a, working, in a working, worker's inquiry. And out of this process, we began to conceptualize ideas of um, where are the choke points? Because we found out at that particular refinery, there were two rail lines that went in. And management strategy, should there be a strike, is on one of them, they just let the railroad unionized workers roll the, the locomotives in. And the other one, they, were, um, they knew that they could train some of the refinery management 
to be licensed to run a train. And should there be a strike, they could run the train into the into the refinery. And all these little bits and pieces were really important to know. The little nuts and bolts of the supply chain and also the vulnerabilities and also as the working class, our weaknesses that we have to try to overcome. So if you go to the next slide, that previous slide had a series of questions. We probably had too many questions, but we were fortunate that we had 15 tables in this meeting, our meeting room that we could break them up and have uh, parse out railroad workers and refinery workers at the various tables and work through a series of inquiry questions about hypothetically as a thought experiment, extending that refinery worker strike. And if you go to the next slide, we have a whiteboard where we came up results. So people put their brains together and came up with solutions of how solidarity could be extended and how it could be built stronger. And we, out of that process, we came up with the following flow charts. So if you could show the strike, um, the, the choke point strike flow chart, you see that we identified at the center of this process is the refinery worker. And a lot of people at the workshops were saying things like, well, why don't we go to gas stations and hold up puppets and banners and things like that? And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's pure symbolism. And we said the strength of the working class is upstream. So if we looked upstream, we looked at how the crude arrived at the refineries in the United States. At that time, it was coming by rail, mostly a unionized sector. If we went back the next step at the fracking fields, it's mostly a non-unionized sector. Fracking is a crazy, disgusting thing that's destroying our planet, but it's a lot of workers involved. They have up to 4 million gallons of water in the fracking wells, 300 truckloads of sand. The EPA has identified 1,080 chemicals. Often they use up to 600 chemicals in a single facility. How do they get there? Often by truck. So we started thinking like, who are the workers in all these parts of the supply chain? And the upstream is where the power is. So if you could shut it down upstream, you could shut the whole thing down. Doesn't mean to ignore the downstream because we know out of a refinery, the stuff probably goes various ways, sometimes by pipeline, sometimes by, um, by truck, again, sometimes by train. And then it gets to the, it could be feedstock going to factories. It could be, um, again, by trucks to the gas station to us as consumers. But we're all on this production chain and our power is upstream and we fixated on trying to concentrate on that. So um, the next slide is just where are you on the supply chain? I think we're all, as I said, as consumers, we're at the end of the supply chain, but the power is upstream and we wanted people to start focusing on the upstream. If you can show the choke point strike um, flowchart again, we really wanted people to start seeing themselves at the center of a, of a chain of production. It could be even nurses in a hospital. It could be teachers or university professors at a university. But there are inputs. There are outputs. There's a chain there. And if you're aware of it and you're aware of the different pieces that fit together, upstream is where the power is. Um, there's countless examples of strikes that actually have been able to identify those pieces in the, the links in the chain and gone upstream and found ways to strengthen strikes. I'll leave it at that. Robert and I have done this as an interactive workshop where we have asked people to actually look at their own workplace and see where their strength lies and begin by looking upstream and where did the goods come in. I'll finish with one final thing. In 2018, when the West Virginia strike happened in the education sector, you know, I, it, there's a misunderstanding um, that it was teachers, it was everyone. It was bus drivers, people who worked in the cafeterias, it was the people who did landscaping and janitorial work, and their strength was they saw the whole chain and it was everyone in that process. 
And not only did they have meetings that include all those people, including parents and teacher uh, and parents and students, they opened it to the community. And it was a community wide working class meeting to talk about strategizing a strike. And that's what we need to be doing. And I'll leave it there. Oh, wow, Gifford. My my mind is just racing with questions. Um, and I, I just have to say, you know, I, I hope that we can we can get um, you comrades to, to talk to some of the, the two ed unions. Um, I just so many of the things that you said took me back home to, to Colombia, to, to the oil workers and the coal workers in particular. And all the, you know, the direct actions that they've taken in the refinery plants. Um, and I, I really I want to highlight that you mentioned um, in the case of Korea, the, the sort of military force um, and the threat of violence that the state often responds with um, at the state serving, of course, you know, these private capital's interests um, and just how important that is, um, especially in, in the global south where to, you know, declare a credible strike threat is often putting your, your life on the line. Um, and especially, you know, in, in, when in La Uso, La Unión Sindical Obrera, the oil workers of Colombia, when they've taken over the refineries and the military um, sort of counter occupies those refineries and it's a standoff in the refinery and any flame can, you know, set this whole thing off. How do workers keep themselves safe? You know, they quote, um, like they hold some of the engineers hostage. They say, you know, we'll hang this man if you shoot at us. Just like it's a complete inversion of the world order um, where, you know, sort of the, the true violence of labor sort of surfaces. Um, and, and often the most successful strikes are those that have, you know, the community backing. Um, and, and so I also appreciate that, that you mentioned, um, for example, the Dakota Axle pipeline and um, I, I, I'm very excited about all of these um, these insights that you're sharing. Um, but before I, I, I continue babbling on, I'll, I'll stop and, and um, pass the microphone um, over to Ben to, to wrap us up in, in the discussion before we get to questions. And um, this is just you know a reminder to the, to the audience to please uh, type your questions into into the chat, and um, we'll be happy to take them. Um, after after Ben's presentation. So Ben, go ahead. Floor is yours. Cool. Thank you very much. And just to absolutely agree with you, I think both of those presentations are extremely exciting and the research behind those presentations and the work that both Gifford and Robert have done have been absolutely inspirational um, to myself, but a whole new generation of our organisers over in the UK. So absolutely <laughs> can't go for an opportunity without mentioning that. Um, as, as has been mentioned really in a couple of the presentations already, I mean, the UK is going through a a strike wave, a summer of strikes is going to go into an autumn and a winter, and there's really, at the moment, no end to it. It's only escalating and escalating. Uh, which, and as I mentioned earlier, I think that means this is one of the most exciting times to be in uh, uh, in the UK Labour movement, by which I absolutely mean the union movement and not the Labour Party, by the way. Um, and just to give you a scale of that, I mean, we were just as we speak now, we're a couple of days away from uh, the National Postal Workers Dispute that begins on the 26th. We're in the middle of uh, a railway dispute, so that's been railway workers and also now railway drivers who are in a different union. They've now gone on to national dispute as well. 
We're at the beginnings of public sector disputes, both in the health and in local councils, uh, with 13 local councils across Scotland who have just gone out today. Uh, and again, I may well touch on that in a moment because, again, they've picked strategic positions of power, particularly in waste management, recycling, refuge, in order to demonstrate that power. Uh, and so they've just gone out today. And as has also been mentioned, you know, that's just the official actions that are taking place. There's also you know, receiving anger in the UK at the moment, you know, partly due to the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, coming out of a period of an absolute political pantomime with the uh, UK's withdrawal of the European Union, the administration of Boris Johnson over here. Um, and so that anger is manifesting in all sorts of ways. And so we have seen the wildcat actions at Amazon fulfillment centres, uh, in const- across construction industry, in refineries, uh, where workers have been walking out. And even in our own union, so as I mentioned earlier, so Unite is a large general workers union in both the UK and in Ireland. And in just our union alone, we've seen over 400 disputes within the last year, August to August. I and mean, that is an unprecedented number uh, because you know the UK faces the most vicious anti-trade union laws in Western Europe in terms of the mandates that are required for ballots, the notice period that's required to give the employers, all sorts of things which tie the hand of the official, you know, the officialdom of the trade unions and has been used as an excuse by some leaders in the past. It has to, absolutely has to be acknowledged. Um, but nevertheless, overcoming that, we've seen 76,000 workers just in our union alone going into dispute uh, over the last year. And 80% of those plus have been winning those disputes. They've been moving the employers, winning those fights on pay. And as I mentioned earlier, at the same time, that marks the first year we've had uh, of Sharon Graham's tenure as our general secretary. And one absolutely reflects the other. There was an absolute anger within the union of a need to see a fighting trade union, a need to put resource and support into building that shop stewards uh, layer within the union. And it, it's like that you mentioned earlier, actually, what I think workers bluntly are sick and tired of in this country is this phony social dialogue. They're absolutely fed up of lobbying. They're absolutely fed up of the traditional A to B marches where we hear some official or some MP give a talk at Parliament Square. They're absolutely fed up of e-petitions. <laughs> uh, and now we're moving towards a question of, in the workplace, you know, workers' power, mobilising workers' power, organising workers' power, demonstrating workers' power, uh, which is really the couple of examples I want to share with yourselves and then a couple of other reflections on the choke point strategy. And so there's two real case studies to mention. Uh, and the first is is the dispute, which has been mentioned several times already, which is this uh, ongoing Dockers dispute uh, at Felixstowe. And so we have 2,000 Dockers who've gone in, on strike there. They're in uh, the fourth day of eight days of action. Ostensibly, the action is over pay. The employer is trying to force down a significant real terms pay cut on those workers. Um, but it really does go beyond that. I mean, when you're talking to the workers on the picket line, and I was there today, and it's absolutely the largest picket line of its kind we've seen in our union for uh, for potentially for decades to see all those workers on the same place. And really, at the same time, I should mention that the government are talking about extending those anti-trade union laws. So we have two characters vying to become our new prime minister in a race to the bottom, really, on who can bring in the most draconian anti-union laws, restricting who can be on pickets, talking about only six people on a picket. Now we've got 2,000 workers out, hundreds of people on each picket uh, or surrounding them in in rallies and demonstrations. So it's a powerful demonstration of workers' power. Uh, And to an extent, just to give you a bit of context, I mean, in the background of this, when you talk to the workers, obviously the issue is pay. It's also respect. 
In the background of this, we have the increased threat of automation, which is obviously there in all of the docs, increased attempts to bring in flexible working practices, tearing up terms and conditions. But what those workers are also fully aware of is that companies like the Dockers companies, the shippers companies, the Mercs of this world, you know, they're making more profits in the last year than they have in their entire history. Mercs, for example, made more profit last year than the last eight years combined. And workers can see that, particularly somewhere in docks where it's so overtly, it's so in their face, they can see that. The idea that they have to pay for this crisis with a huge cost to their living uh, standards is absolutely an absolute joke. But to give you another little bit of context to this, and this comes back to some of the credible strike discussion, uh, this was never supposed to be able to happen, according to the employers. This is absolutely an, an example of the workers calling the employers bluff on this one. So those workers at Felix, though, have not been on strike for 30 years. Uh, furthermore, the investment went into Felix, though, in the 1980s and 1990s as an anti-union open shop port. So previously, before the 1980s, our union had a national agreement for Liverpool, London. I mean, we're an island nation. The docks are fundamentally important. Felix, though, is where the money went to try and break that agreement. And that's where really the anti, uh, it was meant, always meant to be an anti-union port. So the idea that now that's the UK's largest container port, and now that's where um, the biggest strike that certainly our union is facing uh, in this new strike where it was happening, there's no shortage of irony to that. Um, and the disruption uh, is, is is immediately obvious, of course, in the docks itself, but now echoing down the supply chain, which is where it's yeah, it's very yeah, intriguing and exciting to see is something we've really discussed in theory in the past. So, I mean, the disruption is obvious for the immediate company itself. And we've got, I know the shippers like to all make this claim, but we've got what is currently claimed to be the largest container port uh, in the world, currently docked at Felixstowe, unable to move. We've got five other similar sized container ships just outside Felixstowe, unable to come in. And while some of them are trying to be diverted to places like Thames Gateway or Southampton, because of the ongoing disruption after COVID, you know, those ports are full. They're not able to simply move them. Um, and at the same time, you know, we're seeing solidarity statements from the comrades in Rotterdam port saying that they won't be accepting goods from Felix, though. And as we speak, we're currently balloting uh, the workers at the Port of Liverpool to bring them out in dispute on their own issue of pay as well, which is significant because for the dock sector, Liverpool and Felix, though, those are the two big pay setters or undercutters for pay across the whole dock sector. So if there's any opportunity to coordinate that, to bring those two disputes out at the same time, uh, that's going to be fundamentally powerful. And what we're seeing in terms of a supply chain disruption, again, as we speak, when I tend to deal with the automotive sector primarily, uh, and several uh, large factories across the UK, uh, you know, big brand names, their factories are now shutting. Those factories which haven't been able to move away from, they're still wedded to the just-in-time production model, uh, they're very much now running out of components, only four days into this strike. And so they're going to be screaming at the port owner again and again. We're able to now map out that disruption, get estimates for the cost of that disruption, which is really you know, some of the things we've discussed in theory we're now seeing play out in our union, at least. Um, and then, you know, the docks have been discussed before. The docks are a traditional place where we talk about you know, positional power or structural power. Uh, the second example to share really is inverting that. Whereas if we look at a car plant uh, in the southern England, in Oxford, uh, and yeah, Oxford is the most expensive city to live in in the UK outside of London. It's a city most associated with universities and Harry Potter and things of that nature, not large scale manufacturing. But nevertheless, they have a significant car plant in Oxford. Uh, and like the rest of the automotive industry, that has been uh, it's been a process where work has been outsourced. It's been subcontracted out. It's been fragmented. And there, so we've seen a growth of a supply chain even within the four walls of the plant. 
where different workers are under different employers, et cetera, et cetera. And what we've seen in the last uh, year or so, really, and certainly culminating in the last couple of months, there was a small group of workers in a third-party logistics firm whose job it was uh, to basically put the components onto the assembly line so the full-time workers could then be assembling the vehicles. Now, obviously, a huge position of, of structural power for that car plant, but those have always been the workers on the worst paying conditions, ununionized, you know, the worst pay, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, also, uh, not coincidentally, the most demographically diverse group of workers, predominantly from East Timor, in fact. And they took a series of wildcat actions over the last year because uh, on the question of pay, uh, because they recognized their structural power and they were able to invert uh, their traditional weakness into their strength, just as the automotive sector was going through a general uh, supply chain crisis itself. You know, those workers uh, continued that action. They've unionized now. They've taken official action. They took one day of formal action costing the employer over £8 million due to lost production. Uh, and they won double-digit pay rises over 20%. That was also followed by HGV drivers supplying the same plant under a different employer, supported by the core workers in that plant. So you know, workers from three different employers coming together across the supply chain, defending paying conditions, and then ex- advancing their pay uh, over 20% in both cases. And it's important to say, I mean, this isn't just a question of you know pounds and pence and pay. Uh, this is a question of empowerment fundamentally. And the one thing I think which is intriguing in both of those cases, one where you have very traditional structural power and one where there's been a, a, a later realisation of power from workers who have been fundamentally the most exploited in that plant. So very different starting points. On both of those uh, picket lines, both at Felixstowe and at the car plant, uh, the picket lines will have a fake carnival festival atmosphere. There was singing, there was dancing, uh, there was celebration. I mean, we always say as trade union officials, you know, workers don't want to strike. And there's all the, the points that Robert just raised about that, about undermining strike credibility. But the reality is the realisation those workers had of their power and yeah, the feeling that came from that, it did result in a carnival atmosphere, particularly when they knew the disruption they were causing the employer. They knew the employer had to come back to them. And in the case of the car plant, they've won significant increases from that and increased their, you know, their confidence accordingly. Uh, and so I think we're also seeing that, I should mention, in the public sector now, where those uh, waste workers I mentioned, uh, so workers in uh, in garbage, refuge, uh, recycling are going out across across Scotland and potentially the rest of the country as well. So again, they are, you know, they're realising that structural power, even in places where traditionally, unlike the docks, it wasn't necessarily recognised by the trade unions. Um, and that really is a, a, a real-life demonstration, I think, of what we've been talking about in our research, really, on, on paper. Uh, so the, the research that myself and my co-author, Andrew Waterman, contributed to the, the special issue, which, um, which Robert uh, edited, was really looking at that more in theory in relation to the changing context the UK find, found itself as the UK left the European Union. Now, in the rest of the UK, that was broadly seen as a political process. We are very keen to understand it fundamentally as an industrial process. Uh, and really to understand, as we mentioned earlier, when we look at things such as trade particularly, which has now forced itself onto the trade union's agenda here after Brexit, when I mean, the UK hasn't had a an independent trade deal since the 1970s, so we haven't looked at it as much as, say, the US trade unions would do. But even where, where that has been looked at, the trade union's response traditionally is uh, policy papers, it's social dialogue, it's trying to be a stakeholder, it's trying to get in the same room as the multinational uh, employers and try and tweak the rules of trade somewhat. And that's that's failed for decades and decades, and there's no prospect of that strategy working now, uh, particularly, and particularly in this context. So what we really wanted to do in our research was, as a point of principle, sh- invert that really, 
and look at not the rules of trade, but the act of trade. Absolutely, as has been demonstrated in Felixstowe, absolutely has been de- demonstrated um, by all those auto workers. And to try and understand really in that process, after the UK has come out of the European Union, as the rules have changed, as we have new trade deals, et cetera, et cetera, as we've now had the pandemic, as we've seen uh, the end of just-in-time supply model, or really that fundamental supply chain model breaking, what are employers' new strategies? How are they recalibrating what they're doing to us to go on the offensive uh, for our people? And then what are our strategies going to be uh, to counter that? And, I mean, it may sound like quite a... a a twee example, actually, but when when we uh, did our paper, the industry we chose to study for this to find a case study was actually the Scotch whisky industry, uh, and the reason for that is that in Scotland it's fundamentally important. There's it, thousands and thousands of people employed in Scotch whisky production, uh, be that in small distilleries or be that in large bottling plants, and it's for one of the number one large exporting uh, products that Scotland has. So when it comes to an issue such as international trade. Scotch whisky is always going to be a thing that uh, trade negotiators have in trade deals with China, the United States, other countries as well. So it's it's fundamentally a trade issue and it employs uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, across Scotland. That's absolutely no exaggeration. But it's also an industry which has fundamentally shifted how it, on, how it organizes its supply chain. And it's also an industry where at every point in that supply chain, United is the majority union, in many cases, the only union. And so there's an opportunity there to understand the fragmentation of that supply chain process and then also look to how we could stitch it back together again through the union in order to identify structural positions of power in that supply chain. So, for example, you'll have the distilleries, which will be creating raw product. You'll have the HGV drivers who'll be moving that to bottling plants and every single HGV full of those spirits will be worth up to a million dollars each. So that's a huge amount, again, of structural power those HGV drivers will have. Then you'll have the bottling workers themselves You'll have the workers making the glass bottles. You'll have the workers making the packaging. You'll have the workers uh, taking the finished product to the docks. And then you'll have the dockers. And at every single stage of that process, they all unite the union members. Uh, But traditionally, in the way that we've been structured, they're not people who talk to each other. They're outside of different industrial structures within the official movement. So bringing them together, allowing them to map the process, really using COVID as a a case study as well, and then you can find the, the points of structural power and then you can use them to invert the process. We've seen all the, the same issues of uh, labor fragmentation, of subcontracting, of outsourcing. That I previously mentioned the automotive sector was absolutely evident uh, in, in that sector as well. And so we, yeah, we carried out that large case study as part of our work over the last year, sort to bring those workers together so they could fundamentally understand how the changing, changing dynamics of trade would impact all of them down the supply chain but then also how they could look to defend themselves and indeed go on the offensive to this large cartel of employers, such as Diageo, for example. You, know, you end up in a situation where there where three or four large multinational employers, they fundamentally control the entire uh, production system. And we have to have a, a, an answer to that. So just in the last couple of minutes, really, the, 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 in terms of the broader questions uh, that that particular case study and then these latter-day examples have demonstrated is – yeah, the fundamental question for us is how are employers' strategies changing after Brexit? And then how do we respond to that? Uh, and there's sort of two things there. I mean, firstly, as the war in Ukraine has demonstrated, as the energy crisis has demonstrated, certainly in the UK and internationally, these crises are becoming more and more and more and more uh, frequent. And there's no uh, sign that that's going to stop anytime soon. So the existing system that we've had in the UK, particularly the system of taut supply chains, of just-in-time supply, of removing the time, removing the cost, 
fundamentally using the supply chain system to drive down pay and drive down conditions. That's fundamentally broken now. So the employers have to respond to that. Uh, and what we're beginning to see, uh, and all of these uh, all of these different examples have seen that, is a fundamental shift to smaller versions of what Gifford was talking about with the inland empire on a smaller geographical scale because we're a smaller country. Um, but it's fundamentally a huge amount of investment in these massive mega shared warehousing distribution units uh, adjacent to major docks. And on top of that, as part of the uh, the employers and the government's program, is the new free ports which have been introduced, including uh, Felixstowe, which are tax-free hubs, anti-workers' rights hubs, essentially legal black zone, uh, black holes, where all this money and investment is going into uh, for new mega-shared warehousing, Amazon fulfillment centres, et cetera, et cetera. So on the one hand, the UK is structurally changing around these big blocks of uh, of new unorganised uh, of workers. On the other hand, talking about what Gifford and Robert have talked about, those are fundamentally important uh, structural positions now in the new UK economy as it's emerging uh, after Brexit. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll finish my remarks there. Really. The only final thing to mention is in terms of Unite's response and the new things that Sharon Graham has done, and these are really just headlines we can bring out in the discussion. Um, and Robert mentioned strike fund. We now have a £50 million strike fund in Unite the Union, which is supporting all of those disputes. That's the largest uh, in the UK. There's been a big commitment to new research in Unite, particularly exploring profiteering, as I mentioned at Felix, though, forensic accountancy, understanding multinational structures and, and company analysis, bringing that all in-house in collaboration with shop stewards who can do their own inquiries, as Robert's mentioned. And then the combine model where we're bringing these workers together, as I've mentioned, different industries to set the rate for the job, benchmark paying conditions, identify pace setters and undercutters and go on the offensive and not just be on the defensive all the time. Um, and so, again, as I mentioned before, it's a fantastically exciting time to be in the UK labour movement and particularly in Unite the Union. Uh, and thanks again for allowing me to share some of that with you. Uh, happy to answer any questions and contribute to the discussion. But again, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Ben, for that uh, sort of real-time um, reporting on the ground. Uh, very, very exciting. And I just want to know, we are close to our closing time. We're going to go a little bit over time, um, but not, not too much. So I'm going to read some questions out, and then hopefully the three of you can pick which you want to answer. Um, the first is from Joe Allen, um, who is a is a UPS worker and um, recently published uh, an article called UPS: The Global Struggle, um, in which you know he sort of talks about um, UPS operating in in 220 countries and territories around the world and um, with their contract uh, uh, ending in um, I believe it's next summer, next year's summer in 2023, um, workers are, are starting to, to organize um, and, you know, sort of the, the perspectives from, from socialists in, um, in the union are particularly important. And he asks, what can make UPS solidarity effective um, based, on, based on your studies and your work? So that is one question from Joe Allen. Um, Another question is to go deeper into what makes uh, workers' inquiries um, effective. Sort of what what are when writing these these questions, um, what kinds of questions sort of tap into um, 
better understanding one's working conditions and uh, one's, you know, participation in in capitalism. Um, and then related to that, how can we make that information, the answers available and, um, you know, become sort of essentially tools for workers? Um, so, you know, these answers are, are helpful um, to... I don't know. I can think of, of a personal example. For example, um, the Volkswagen plant uh, workers in Puebla, Mexico, trying to get in touch with uh, Volkswagen uh, unionized workers in in Germany, and w- thinking that it would be useful to have, you know, answers and insights, and also contact information. Um, they're ready to to potentially organize and strike um, upstream, but but. Um, if that information and those contacts aren't there, that, that makes it difficult. So um, those questions. And then there was um, one from Pip Rosie asking, asking, I wonder how we can make strike and red green revolution more tempting and straightforward for people to get involved with. Um, and I think that speaks to a larger question, um, which we're interested in, in internationalism from below relating to uh, cross-movement solidarity. Um, maybe you can highlight some examples of that. Um, and then one more question, and, and that will be the, the closing one um, from Fion D. Is transport work part of the production process or auxiliary to it? Marx considers it part of production because it adds value to the production um, example, coal isn't worth much if it doesn't leave the mine. Um, and lastly, before handing it off to you, I just uh, wanted to to really highlight the the importance that you've given to um, not only analyzing strategies that are effective, but also being you know self-reflective, self-critical, uh, and and sort of engage in the history of failed strategies. Um, and it's it's you know, beautiful and powerful when when that intergenerational um, solidarity exists within a union where, for example, in the UPS case, um, workers that were there in the international 1997 uh, strike and say, you know, this is why we kicked ass, like this is why we were effective. Um, and that's not even that far back, of course. Um, but but being able to, to study your union's history, um, labor history and um, and sort of not drink the Kool-Aid in that, in that regard. Um, and then the last question will be what resources, websites, manuals do you recommend that workers who, you know, I guess like myself, who, who just want, are, you know, have, um, are involved in this world and, and sort of want to, um, have resources to, to tap into, which do you recommend films, podcasts, anything at all? So it's a bit of an onslaught of questions, but, um, I, I trust you all to to answer absolutely every single one. <laughs> so um, I don't know, Robert. I'll, do you want to take? Oh, please, give it. Yeah, the Joe Allen. You know, Joe Allen's done wonderful yeah. about the UPS strike. There's a lot of lessons to be learned from that 16-day strike in 1997, which was largely successful. Um, but the system of logistics has changed. Um, a lot more stuff is moving a lot faster, and it's in some ways more vulnerable. And things like the Louisville um, UPS Air Hub 
is a vulnerable target because the workers there work under the Railway Labor Act, which actually allows secondary boycotts. So there's new strategies that could be applied. We need to map the hubs. You know, they've changed since 1997. They're probably more extensive and reach further. And Sean O'Brien, the new leader of the Teamsters, talks a good game and we have to hold his feet to the fire. And Joe Allen probably has a lot to offer. If he could have a conversation with us someday, I'll leave it at that. Lovely. Thanks, Gifford. Uh, Robert, Ben, do you want to weigh in on any of these questions? I'll make one very short one before I hand over to the actual experts and the rest of these questions, because it's a sort of local concern in terms of the red-green question. Because, I mean, again, I, I deal with automotive workers in the main, and I think both in the US and the UK, I mean, and globally, there's a huge opportunity for that sector to be where we see a red-green movement emerging. Because for a long time, certainly in the UK, there's been big cultural clashes, I suppose, between you know, being very stereotypical about what you might think about manufacturing workers uh, or the environmental movement in the UK, which has been predominantly far more middle class, for example. But now, I think certainly talking to the auto workers, uh, if their jobs are going to survive, then they have to have a genuine worker-led transition to green technologies. So we, we're talking about electric vehicles, we're talking about the components for those, we're talking about other forms of vehicles. And in the UK, the statistics for the amount of jobs that will be lost if that transition doesn't happen uh, is huge, and it will be absolutely the same in the United States. And so we have seen in the last year or so, you know, disputes at car component sites, which won't be here come 2030, even come 2025, which are now getting support from the environmental movement in the UK. And those things have been traditionally very, very separate. So I think there's the beginning of a coming together, but on workers' terms, with workers having the plans of how to transition their sites. I think that's a very exciting thing, again, that's happening in the UK. And I think if that can happen in the automotive sector, that can absolutely happen across the rest of the movement. So it's a bit of a, a local example, but I just wanted to jump in before handing over to, to the, the experts here. <laughs> We're well, all experts here, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> you're being a little bit modest there. I mean, you're actually putting this uh, to work with with your allies and and fellow workers in the UK. So, um, but on the red green question, uh, this is not something I directly work on. So maybe Gifford, you want to uh, add something as well. But one of the things that I see as uh, has a lot of potential with that is using uh, the choke points analysis. So when environmental activism is happening uh, that is uh, focused on being disruptive, that it's not just a symbolic, you know, chain our, our arms to a bank door and wait for the police to come along and, and cut off those chains, but actually take into account the infrastructure, um, the production process, distribution nodes, and so forth, and be able to, uh, to carry out those kinds of disruptive actions in uh, conjunction in alliance with uh, workers who are organizing in those sectors. You know, Gifford just talked about uh, the UPS uh, hub um, in uh, in Louisville, um, and you could foresee uh, a kind of perfect uh, alliance that happens between uh, these two movements in that way uh, to support uh, and work with and alongside uh, the UPS workers as they're organizing at those choke points. Uh, there was also a, a, a question about resources and where you can go to find more information. Um, and a number of books have already been mentioned, for example, but there's also some uh, some great online resources that are available, uh, including uh, the website Organizing Work, which I think has some great uh, first-person accounts of, of workers who are doing this kind of organizing uh, and really uh, 
creating a place where they can share tactics and strategies and what's worked and what hasn't worked. Um, another one is labor notes. Um, they put out a lot of great resources about the nuts and bolts of organizing, uh, of uh, developing tactics and strategies. You can find a lot of their materials for free on their website. Uh, many of their articles are also very useful uh, in that way. And then every two years, they do uh, a conference that uh, Gifford and I did our presentation and training at. Um, if you can get to it, it's just an incredible resource. Um, and a great way to meet other people who might be uh, organizing um, in the same sector and the same employer that you never even knew uh, existed. Um, and then also uh, the UK uh, website slash group called Notes from Below. Um, they're now focused primarily on the UK, but they in the past, they've done a lot of international work. Um, but they actually have a, a model workers inquiry on their website. Uh, they just turned that into a book. Uh, that I just recently read, uh, which are workers' writings. Uh, and I believe they're from 11 different sectors in the UK. And there's some really good ones in there. Uh, there's one by an Amazon worker who, who gives a really interesting uh, qualitative narrative about uh, the composition, what we call the composition of capital, of how Amazon uh, is organized in a warehouse, how it divides the workers and their attempts to try to overcome some of those divisions, the role of technology and hierarchy and so forth, monitoring and surveillance. Surveillance. Uh, so there's some really great stuff there. Uh, each of their issues uh, are written by people who are involved in that kind of organizing. Um, and then also some of the books that have been put out by members uh, of Notes from Below are also really useful. Jamie Woodcock's books on call centers, uh, Callum Kant's book on uh, writing for Deliveroo. Uh, these are just really great qualitative analysis that give you a really good insight into how to do a worker's inquiry um, in wherever you are. And also uh, Gifford and I often do these workshops where uh, we actually uh, have the folks that attend uh, do a mini choke points analysis and do an inquiry into where they work and then identifying uh, where there are possible choke points and connections being made up and downstream. And I just want to add something about that uh, to uh, to Joe's question about UPS is um, I think where uh, UPS's uh, effectiveness and power can really lie is identifying uh, up and downstream uh, where UPS is serving um, and where workers are, are best organized and strongest, where they can have a disruptive impact um, in disrupting uh, UPS's ordinary day-to-day -day work. Uh, we attempted to do a little bit of this um, when I was the chair of our organizing committee in my local chapter, uh, where we started to meet with other campus unions and uh, and several of us were going through contract campaigns at the time. Um, and it has so much more potential that was unrealized, but trying to figure out how uh, each of our work at the university in this single workplace uh, can actually uh, be uh, supportive of one another. So when we're engaged in organizing in order to build our power and develop a credible strike threat, how can we work across these divisions of, of our unions, of our, of our work classifications, our job categories and so forth? Um, and then one other thing is I just want to uh, briefly respond to the question about how going back to the red and green is how do we 
demonstrate the effectiveness and potential. And I really think that we really need to start small and modest and uh, build for uh, carrying out uh, small scale campaigns that we can win. Um, so the low hanging fruit is where you can uh, really be most effective and then demonstrate your effectiveness to other workers. So they want to get involved. And that's what's really exciting about the international network of the Amazon Workers United that crosses Europe and the United States is that uh, they organize on the shop floor. They carry out these marches on the boss or walkouts and uh, they win some of those things. And they might not be exciting at first. For example, you know, water breaks or um, air conditioning or longer bathroom breaks or a little bit better pay. But they demonstrate the effectiveness of organizing. And that's why we're now seeing so many strikes across these different Amazon locations that are powerful and effective. Um, beautiful. Thank you, Robert. Gifford, do you want to add anything uh, to any of the questions? I believe Gifford might be frozen. Frozen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in that case, we'll end on that um, sort of call to action that, that Robert shared um, with starting small winning sort of confidence and um and really embodying this like we got us like we have our back neoliberal governments don't have our back private capital doesn't have our back we workers got our back and it's i mean you all work in this really fascinating you know paradoxical space where workers aren't supposed to know how, you know, the machine works in some ways, right? I mean, in the sense of we're not supposed to be experts of our own work, of our own industries, um, and of how workers are interdependent um, and and connected. Um, and yet, you know, you listen to these neoliberal, like, sub, like, take control of your own supply chain podcasts, which are hilarious. Um, and these like pseudo fucking business graduate school people going on and on about their expertise in the supply chain. And it's like, actually, you know, it's the collective knowledge of workers that, uh, that really make the shit move. Um, and that have the power to shut it down. And the more that we, you know, um, make those those connections and overcome the obstacles that have been created by design. Um, the the more obvious that will be, um, and and the more power we'll be able to exercise. So thank you for your work. Thanks everyone for listening in. Uh, Joe, you you heard it from from these folks. You know, contact them. Let's let's do organizing in real time. Um, and. And Ben, good luck. Good luck on the on the streets. I'm sure you're like gonna like close this meeting and go go back to the streets. So, cheers and uh, and thanks everyone. Take care, of solidarity. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.